This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. People generally want to ride their bikes more to work, on errands, to a friend's house, but they don't because they're scared. That's Avi Stopper. He leads a new movement based in Denver called the Bike Streets Project. So in 2019, we have a very ambitious goal of getting lots and lots of people out riding bikes. Tens of thousands or even 100,000 people riding bikes across the vast expanse that is the city of Denver. I love that you're all about movement, but your last name is Stopper. It's an unfortunate coincidence. I met Stopper in Denver's Congress Park neighborhood, not far from the Botanic Gardens. He, of course, rode his bike here. His bike's pretty unassuming. And so is Stopper. He's not decked out in lycra, just office attire and a helmet. And we talked more about the kind of people who want to hop on their bikes, but don't. The most substantial group is described often as interested but concerned. And that represents full-on 60% of the population in cities like Denver. So 60% of people want to ride their bikes, but don't feel comfortable in the established infrastructure. As you were answering that, you pointed to a giant RTD bus that was whizzing by. Yeah, so here we are on 12th in Congress Park, and there happened to be right in front of us sharrows. And sharrows are basically a stencil of a bicycle and two arrows pointing in the direction that bicycles should ride. So they are sharing a lane here with buses. And that's intimidating, you're saying, for folks. That's terrifying for the vast majority of people who would otherwise be interested in using a bicycle to ride around town. It's not that great for the bus driver either. I mean, I put myself in the driver's seat as well. I mean, I'm a cyclist and a driver. And I can think about those times I've been on a busy road. And I think, this isn't safe for either of us. Should you be one street over? One street over is exactly where we're going to go in a moment. So 11th in Congress Park is part of the Bike Streets map. And it's this delightful neighborhood street. I just rode down it. And there are tons of people out there walking their dogs. There are kids out there playing. It's a great place to ride your bicycle. And it's the sort of place where I would ride, where I would take my kids, where my parents would be inclined to ride, where folks who are traditionally not terribly confident, and maybe they are confident but just don't want to contend with buses on the way home, would rather ride their bikes. He referred there to the Bike Streets map. It's something he developed with help from New Belgium, the brewery that loves bikes so much they have a beer called Fat Tire. So I call the Bike Streets map the low-stress bicycling map of Denver. And the idea is that it kind of turns your adrenaline rush from riding on big arterial streets into an endorphin rush, a really wonderful, pleasurable experience where you're riding on these low-stress streets You're experiencing the neighborhoods around you, and you don't have to be an incredibly competent bicyclist to do it. Is this a different direction than bike advocates and cities have gone in in the past? In other words, I think of the increasing bike infrastructure in Denver, and in a way, the movement is towards bells and whistles. It's towards these protected lanes special lights that indicate when bikes can go and when bikes can stop. The reality is that there are, in Denver, many organizations and groups within the city, including public works, that are doing fantastic work to advocate for bicycling, to increase ridership in Denver. Now, I think that a lot of the projects that ultimately end up getting built are the types of projects on big scary streets where people don't actually want to ride bikes. The problem is that 
those experiments, those projects are so expensive that they can only be done in these isolated locations. So you end up with what I like to think of as islands, where you have one island just out in the middle of nowhere that's really good, but it doesn't connect into a network. And network is really ultimately what Bike Streets is all about. It is creating a community network that allows you to get anywhere. And the concept of a bike network on low-stress neighborhood streets is not totally novel or innovative by any stretch. The city actually has already on the designated bike map a few of what they call neighborhood bikeways. You're essentially trying to crowdsource this and get input from folks in neighborhoods all over Denver to say, you know... My little street is a wonderful place to safely ride a bike. We have built up a network, 45 so far, of what we're calling neighborhood captains, which are folks who live in neighborhoods scattered around the city who are really interested in bicycling and want to get people in their communities out on their bikes and show them how to get around town. And I'm not just talking about riding to work. You can ride to... That car, by the way, just passed at about 40 miles an hour. You can ride a bike anywhere to meet a friend, to go to someone's house, to go for coffee, to go to church, to go to school, to go to the library. Isn't this a little bit of a duh moment? In other words, if someone's afraid of riding a bike on a busy street, they go to the next street that's not quite so terrifying. It seems like you're expending a fair amount of effort to do something that's pretty intuitive. <laughs> that is a, that's a good question and a fair one. What I have seen is an absence of the ability to turn that into a means to actually get from one place to another. So you can go for a casual, pleasant recreational ride, but what happens when you want to ride from Congress Park down to the Cherry Creek Trail? How do I get there? Avi Stopper would love to take this mission to connect low-stress streets statewide and beyond. But right now, he seems to be getting antsy. He really wants to take me somewhere. So we have been on 12th, which, as I mentioned, is on the conventional bike map. There are these sharrows right down the middle of 12th, and I think we've been passed by four or five buses in the short time that we've been sitting here. So what we're going to do now is we're going to just take a stroll up this pleasant block and stop on 11th, on the corner of 11th and Clayton, which is just a glorious neighborhood intersection and a great place to ride a bicycle. Okay, we're leaving the hardware store, the Greek restaurant, the market on 12th, and we're walking a mere block from 12th to 11th here in Denver. Where we've come, one block over on 11th, it's almost a rest for the ears. Just walking one block in, I feel my blood pressure dropping significantly, the level of stress. And you can see that there are indeed on these side streets cars that are passing through, but they're stopping at stop signs. They're driving 10 to 15 miles an hour in many cases. There's a woman walking a dog. I think it's a greyhound. There's another woman walking a dog behind you. Avi Stopper of the Bike Streets Project, I wonder if we could go back to the busier 12th Avenue so that I can ask you a militant question. Let's get militant. The question is, don't bikes and cars have to share the road, even a busy one like this? And here you are telling cyclists to move over one block and let the cars have their way. In no way is Bike Streets about 
telling folks who are already riding, who are comfortable and confident riding in the places that they're riding, that they shouldn't ride there. However, I'm also a pragmatist, and I recognize that the vast majority of the population is never going to ride on big arterial streets. And personally, I love riding bikes with my kids, who are seven and nine, and the reasons that I love doing bike streets is very much that it's about finding ways that I can get out with them and ride around the city. And there is no way that I can possibly do that with them on a lot of the traditionally marked streets. Avi, thanks so much for meeting me here. I'm sorry we came back to the noisier street. I miss the quiet. Let's go back there and ride. Avi Stopper of Denver leads the Bike Streets Project, and we want to know what you think of his idea. He wants to know, too. Tweet at Colorado Matters with your thoughts, or email news at CPR.org. Iowa will be filled with some Rocky Mountain ambition this weekend. Senator Michael Bennett arrived in the Midwestern state on Thursday, and today he'll be joined by former Governor John Hickenlooper as each man continues to explore a potential run for the Democratic presidential nomination. Also on hand will be CPR News producer Anthony Cotton. He's jetting off to Iowa, but joined us first. Hi, Anthony. Hey, Ryan. What's on the agenda, first off, for Mr. Bennett? Well, Iowa is all about the retail politics, literally meeting the voters where they live. So for Bennett, on Thursday, he attended a house party. Today, he's meeting with Democrats in Polk County, then going to another house party, that one at the home of a state representative. On Saturday, there's yet another house party and a farm party a roundtable discussion with area farmers. Uh, That sounds like someone who's running for president to me. I think there's a bit of indecision with him. uh, And that was reflected in an exchange you had with him when we had him on the show last week. Senator Bennett, on Meet the Press last weekend, you hinted strongly that you may run for president. You said, I've got a different set of experiences than the other folks in the race. Um, Do you want to announce your candidacy here? Uh, I do not want to announce it here, but thank you for the invitation. There are those who would say that Bennett made his intentions known when he took on Texas Senator Ted Cruz during the recent partial government shutdown. These crocodile tears that the senator from Texas is crying for first responders are too hard for me to take. They're too hard for me to take. Because when, you sh- when the senator from Texas shut this government down in 2013, my state was flooded. It was underwater. People were killed. People's houses were destroyed. Their small businesses were ruined forever. And because of the senator from Texas, this government was shut down for politics. We didn't know it at the time, but that was kind of a viral moment that has raised his profile. There have been a number of favorable articles published in places like the Washington Post since then. Now to former Governor Hickenlooper, who has said he'll announce his decision either later this month or in early March. What does his schedule look like this weekend? He's already done a number of house parties on his previous trips to Iowa. So this time he's scheduled to do a couple of local meeting greets at coffee shops and the like. Saturday evening, though, it will really be perhaps one of the most important events on his will he or won't he non-campaign. 
He's going to be speaking at a soup supper in Ames. California Senator Kamala Harris and former Secretary for Housing and Urban Development Julian Castro will also be there. Why is that important? There are a number of reasons. It's the first time Hickenlooper will be sharing a stage with any of the other dozen or so people who were considering running for the nomination. Uh And each of the three are coming at this from differing perspectives. Hickenlooper has been touting his successes during his two terms as governor and saying what's happened in Colorado could kind of be a blueprint for the rest of the country. He's mentioning things like enacting a set of emission standards, which, as people say, has been akin to taking 200,000 cars off the street. But the knock against any governor running for president is that they don't have military or foreign policy experience, which I think Harris may find a way to point out. Castro can say he's actually been in the White House. He was a cabinet member under Barack Obama, which may not hurt his standing with Democrats. We know the Iowa caucuses, which are scheduled for February 3rd, 2020, are considered a crucial start to the primary season. How do all these potential candidates win over the state's voters? I mean, especially because the field is so large for the Democrats at this point. It really boils down to just being there and being there a lot. This is at least the third trip Hickenlooper has made, and he's already planning on going back next week. Uh Bennett's a little bit behind on that front, but looking at his schedule, clearly he's trying to make up some ground this weekend. And again, the idea is meeting people where they live. This is Brad Anderson. He's now the, the Iowa State Director for AARP, but he worked with the Democratic Party there in 2008 and 2012. Candidates are going to have to stand out, they're going to have to interact with people personally, and they're going to have to do a lot of work on the ground. There's 99 counties here. Typically what you're talking about, if you're going to run a real caucus campaign, is eight, nine events a day. If you can try and get to all 99 counties, great, but uh, it's just going to take a lot of work to cover a lot of ground here in Iowa. Anderson told us that when Barack Obama was up for re-election in 2012, he came to Iowa 35 times before the caucuses. Uh-huh. He said this year, that might not even be enough. Previously, the thinking has been that you need to finish in the top three in the Iowa caucuses to get a ticket to move on and keep your candidacy alive. But Anderson says that 2020 may be different. Iowa is not a state where we pick the winner. Iowa is the state where we winnow the field. And so I'd say right now there are probably five, maybe even six tickets out of Iowa, depending on how many people jump in the race. So it strikes me that there's a lot of opportunity for Bennett and Hickenlooper to cross paths in Iowa. Is there enough room for two guys from Colorado in this race? That Democratic tent seems to be pretty sizable at this point. There's a lot of people, obviously. Nine committed candidates and three others like Hickenlooper who have formed committees and are considering running. Then there are a lot of people like Bennett who are exploring their options. The idea that two of those people are from Colorado doesn't seem to be a big deal right now. I believe Bennett mentioned that when we interviewed him last week. Uh-huh. And, and this is Rick Palacio. He's a former Democratic state chair in Colorado, and he's also on the board of Hickenlooper's exploratory pack, Giddy Up. Both Governor Hickenlooper and Senator Bennett have great stories to tell. Colorado is very different than uh, what you see going on in the rest of the country right now. We have a great record of uh, progressive success. Uh, We've been able to accomplish uh, a lot uh, as as a state. We've seen it go from being a solid red state to, you know, moving towards the blue column. And I think that both John and Michael have been part of that success. 
and both of those voices are going to be an important part of this conversation as we look to determine who should be our Democratic nominee. So, at least in the immediate future, the Colorado ambition will be on display in the Democratic race for the White House. Thanks, Anthony. Thank you, Ryan. CPR's Anthony Cotton, ahead of his trip to Iowa, where he'll catch up with U.S. Senator Michael Bennett and former Governor John Hickenlooper, who are making appearances there. In the past week, four state troopers were involved in accidents in as many days. One was hit by a car. He's okay. And three cruisers were also hit. These all happened on the roadside. State Patrol Chief Colonel Matthew Packard tweeted, please drive responsibly and hashtag move over. Lives depend on this, folks. Just recently, the patrol launched a campaign called Hidden Scars to clue people into the dangers that first responders face, including longtime ER nurse Lori McCormick in a video from the campaign. An incident that sticks with me in my mind is a teenage girl who had um, decided to send a text message to her mom real quick because she was running late home. And when she looked up, she rear-ended the back of a trailer and she ended up by losing her life that night. Being the mom of a teenage daughter, it's just something that I think about every day. Lori McCormick is here, along with trooper Josh Lewis, who came up with the idea. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So, Lori, after seeing a teenager killed by texting and driving, I understand you were in an accident in which the other driver was texting and driving. That's correct. Tell me about that. Um, Yeah, it was about five years ago. I was uh, taking my kids home from school supply shopping, and we were rear-ended by a texting driver. And uh, at first, I thought it was kind of no big deal, just a little minor fender bender. And turned out that I ended up by having to have a spine fused after that accident. So it's definitely something that stuck with me forever and something I'm going to live with forever. And you live already with the memory of that teenage girl. Yes, I do. Who came into the ER. So, Josh, I mentioned that videos like Lori's are part of this campaign, Hidden Scars, which features first responders. So cops, medical folks, uh, even I understand a prosecutor telling their stories. Why feature first responders? Uh, well, there's a kind of two parts to the video series itself. And the first part is we want people to have an understanding, have that kind of concept of personal responsibility, to understand that their actions, so often we hear that, well, it only affects me. It doesn't affect anybody else. And that's simply not true. Give me another example of that beyond texting and driving. And we've seen it multiple times with people who say, well, if I don't wear a seatbelt, it's nobody's, nobody's problem but my own. It doesn't affect anybody else until it does until we are the people going to the homes late at night, early morning, saying your loved one's not coming home because of because of this. Uh, the family members themselves, obviously. Uh, the people who get stuck in traffic, the first responders that are going to that scene who are actually paying attention, it always will affect more than just you. That's fascinating. So you want to tell the story of the ripples from an accident, f- from not wearing your seatbelt, And I suppose what changed behavior? Is that fundamental to this? You know, ultimately, that's what we're going for. We we want people to essentially voluntarily comply to save their own lives, to put their own lives in their own hands, not be reliant upon anybody else, but do the things that they know are going to keep them safe, to buckle up, to drive sober, to not drive distracted. The first video in your series features a Douglas County Sheriff's official whose partner died when their patrol car was hit by a drunk driver. Let's listen to Sheriff's Lieutenant Chris Washburn. I spent a lot of time concerned that our troops are going to be injured or killed while they're out conducting traffic stops or doing accident investigations. My hidden scar is worry. 
I wonder, Josh, if this speaks to the second goal you have for the campaign, that word hidden scars. Isn't that part of the problem that first responders often keep this stuff hidden, their reactions to accidents, to death? And you're exactly right. This is the second part that we're trying to reach is for all first responders who are going to be either featured or be a part of it, be able to view these and to understand that it's okay to be a human being. It's okay to have these feelings, have these emotions. Uh, we're very often considered the professionals on scene. We, we can't show any emotion. We can't have it. Uh, and it's simply not true. We're still human beings. It's still going to affect us. We each have our own stories that will live with us forever. Do you experience that as a nurse, that same idea that uh, you can't let the cracks show? Absolutely. Actually, I was just researching that about 33% of all emergency room nurses suffer some sort of PTSD. And I think that that's... Say the percentage again. 33%. 33%. A third of nurses experience PTSD. Exactly. Because we do see, just like Officer Lewis was saying, we do see the other side of the accident and things that get brought into us in the emergency room. And that's stuff that we just can't unsee, unfortunately. So we do have to hold that, that persona that we're strong individuals when we're dealing in the situation and with the case. But but a lot of times the nurses do have that human emotion reaction after afterwards. I have to think that that leads to burnout for a lot of nurses. Absolutely. And probably is the same in the patrol. Do you see that? Uh, we see it across the first responder profession. And there's absolutely no shame in it and having and being affected by it. Our ultimate goal with these is to make sure people realize there is help available uh, if this is not the job for you, that's absolutely okay too. But we want people who are good employees, good workers to be able to have a lifelong career for it. I think just making ourselves aware of taking care of ourselves too, that we are human beings and that we do need to care for ourselves, even though we care for everybody else in the community, we have to take care of ourselves too, because if we aren't taking care of ourselves, we can't take care of others. That is Lori McCormick, who manages the emergency room at Centennial Medical Plaza. Josh Lewis is a state trooper. We spoke in November about the patrol's new campaign called Hidden Scars. Fixing Congress is a tall order, but something that Colorado might show one place to start. I think the United States Congress could use a gavel amendment. I'm Sam Brash, host of CPR's politics podcast, Purplish. We have a new episode about one very important Colorado rule, that every bill gets a hearing and a vote. Bill 1031 passes. Bill 58 fails. What it's meant here and whether something like it could ever help that whole mess in D.C. Purplish, wherever you get your podcasts. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The last Rockies season ended with a thud, or rather a lazy flyball, as they were swept by the Milwaukee Brewers in the National League playoffs. Flyball! Shallow right! This should do it! It is going to be caught by Lorenzo Cain! And this one is over. But in baseball, there's always next year. And spring training sparks new optimism. The Rockies return to the diamond tomorrow against the Arizona Diamondbacks in the spring training opener in Scottsdale. Rockies general manager Jeff Breidich is on the phone with my colleague, Anthony Cotton. Hey, Jeff, how are you doing? Fine, thank you. How are you? I am well. Uh, you've gone through an off season with a lot of business dealing with free agents and signings, 
But now things shift from on paper to playing out before your eyes. How rejuvenated do you get at this time of year? <laughs> um, you know, quite. Um, it's, uh, it is, you know, the eternal time for eternal optimism and, um, and everybody, th- th- there is truth when you hear that cliche that, uh, you know, in spring training, everybody's got a chance. I mean, that, that is the feeling, um, that you have. And especially with the successes that we've had over the last few seasons, um, you know, there's, there's no reason for us to feel otherwise. You know, I think guys are positive in, uh, in, in how we've shown up in the spring and, and positive and how the spring is going to go for us uh, in, in preparation for the start of the season. Well, like you said, you did make the playoffs for a second straight year last season. That was the first in team history. Clearly, the landscape around the league has changed, though, during the offseason. We're admittedly pretty early in the junk, in the process, but where do you think the Rockies fit in right now? <laughs> um, you know, I, I see ourselves, um, you know, kind of in similar fashion to, to last season uh, or, or to our team at this time last year, uh, in which we should, uh, we should challenge for the NL West and we should, we should challenge for uh, a deep run into the, into the playoffs. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of, as you said, there are, it's early and there are a lot of factors that are going to play into that as the weeks and the months uh, go by here you know, injuries or, or performance or, you know, stuff that we don't even see coming uh, right now that it's impossible to see coming are, are somehow going to factor into our season. But uh, as we stand right now, I think I think people are very optimistic that this is a team that should be a, a playoff contender once again. Yeah, I wonder there's a free agent player named Bryce Harper who's still out there that may factor into into what you're talking about. Of course, one of the biggest stories in the game happened earlier this week when free agent infielder Manny Machado signed a 10-year, $300 million contract with the San Diego Padres, one of your rivals in the National League West. I'm sure you can't walk 10 feet without someone pointing out that that deal will impact a potential new contract with your all-star third baseman, Nolan Arenado. He's scheduled to become a free agent at the end of the season. I I don't want to disappoint you by not asking some Nolan questions. So, first of all, um, would you like to announce that you've reached an agreement with him? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, no comment. There's there's really not a whole lot to comment on. You know, it's tough to even comment on the Machado contract right now because we're still, um, you know, it's still so new. I think the Padres literally just announced it officially yesterday. So, there's still, um, you know, and it's not it's not just Bryce that's left out there. There are a few other very talented, um, you know, free agents that are still out there yet to sign. But, you know, one of the great things about the game of baseball is that it's it is one of the ultimate team sports. And so, you know, one player on one team rarely um, affects the balance um, of a league or of a division. You know, to the point where um, you know, it, it it eliminates other teams from contending, or or it just you know kind of changes the balance of of how things go. And so, um, you know, there's there's so much that goes into the game in, in a long schedule over a long season. Um, you know that uh, you know the Padres definitely seemingly have, have added an impact talent and have gotten better. Um, you know, but a lot of things have to go into um, a winning season. 
And, um, you know, we're, as it relates to Nolan, we're just, uh, you know, we're continually happy that he's a part of, of us and that he's on our team. And, um, you know, that's, that's where we stand right now. So there's really been no, even internally talk about how it affects the parameters of, of the negotiations that you're doing with, with Arenado. Well, there's always internal discussions, but that's exactly what they are. They're internal discussions and not external discussions. All right. Two of your divisional rivals, the Los Angeles Dodgers and the San Francisco Giants, are projected to have the fourth and sixth highest payrolls in baseball this season, about $50 million more than what you're expected to spend. How do you how do you compete? How do you win a World Series if if your payroll is only a fraction of two other teams in your own division? Well, um, <laughs> there's a lot of ways, to, you know, that we compete. Uh, you know, I mean, you look around the league and, uh, you know, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the teams that um, have successful seasons, um, you know, aren't always the, the top spenders. Um, you look at the at the Rays last year. You look at the Oakland A's last year. You look at um, Colorado Rockies, you know, past couple of years. You look at... Uh, the Kansas City Royals from a, a few years ago when they went to back-to-back World Series and, and won the second one. Um, you know, the, the 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 most money doesn't always, you know, equal the World Series championship. It's it's not a A equals B all the time type of equation. And so, um, with with the amount of um, human beings that we have that any organization has in a, uh, you know. And it, and 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 the t- the type of depth that you need with those human beings, um, you know, sometimes spending a lot of money on those human beings works out well, and um, and sometimes those big contracts don't, or those high payrolls don't. You know, uh, I think uh, you know one of the nice things specifically with us is that we've been able to grow, and as I've said, uh, I think repeatedly over the years, you know, that that sort of responsible payroll growth for us. Um, is uh, is good and it's important. I think it's reflective of a healthy organization, um, and uh, and we're trying to put, you know, the, the the revenues that we have on the field as much as we can. And um, you know, some teams, you know, it just you know, there's, there's always going to be inequities. You know, I think in this industry, so it's uh, it's not really something that we dwell on a whole lot. You know, we make the most of of who we are and what we can do. And um, you know, over the last couple of years, uh, that has, has pointed us in the direction of, of participating in the playoffs. And, and we feel like with who we are and where we're at, uh, you know, a couple, you know, a couple good bounces and, and some good health and uh, some improvement by the players that we do have or the players that we have brought in. Um, we have just as much of a chance to go to the World Series as anybody else. I want to go uh, off topic for a little bit. Uh, in November, Ryan Warner, our host, interviewed current Governor Jared Polis and his predecessor, John Hickenlooper, and your sport came up. Uh, I want to wrap up by noting that you are both baseball fans, Rockies fans in particular. I thought we'd have a little fun at the end. I want to ask you, if you were in the Rockies lineup, what would your walk-up song be? Well, I think you should also ask where would we bat in the lineup, and I, I think I would unfortunately be eighth or ninth. Uh-huh. I probably have to, but I bet Jared would probably be batting second. I'm just going to second guess. or third I, for the congressional baseball team. I batted uh, usually third or fifth. So yeah. 
Now, Governor Polis went on to say that he's the all-time RBI leader in Washington's annual congressional softball game. Uh, Jeff, what what should we make out of this? You know, you know both of those gentlemen. Uh, which one do you think has the most potential to hit anywhere in a lineup? <laughs> actually, uh, truth be told, I, I actually uh, have never met uh, uh, Governor Polis, but I, I do know. Um, you know, former Governor Hickenlooper uh, somewhat well, um, as he has, you know, he is a, a, a true, you know, tried and true baseball fan, has spent many nights, many days at the ballpark, uh, especially with his son, Teddy. And, and so, um, I mean, just by pure knowledge alone, I'd have to go with, with Hick. Um, you know, but I, I know, you know, that, you know, Mr. Polis's um, reputation, even when he was here, in our fantasy camps uh, precede him. So um, probably a, a toss up there, but, um, you know, maybe leaning on the uh, older, wiser hick to get it done. How about that? All right. By the way, Governor Polis said his walk-up with walk up song would be We Will Rock You by Queen. Former Governor <laughs> Hickenlooper chose Good Life by One Republic. When you were a catcher for, for the Harvard Crimson, what, what was your walk-up song? <laughs> Well, well, that was a long time ago. We really didn't have one, um, but I think it probably should have been another one bites the dust because I was going up there to strike out most likely or ground out weekly. So that's why I'm doing this job and not playing on the baseball field right now. <laughs> All right, Jeff. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Jeff Breidich is general manager of the Colorado Rockies, who play their first exhibition game of the spring tomorrow against the Arizona Diamondbacks. He spoke with my colleague, Anthony Cotton. And we'll be right back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. Buddy, you're a boy, make a big noise, playing in the street, gonna be a big man someday, you got mud on your face, you big With 25 games to go in the season, the Denver Nuggets have their sights on the playoffs. The Nuggets are in Dallas to take on the Mavericks, their first game after the All-Star break. CPR's Vic Vela is here to talk about the team and what to expect over the next couple of months. Hi, Vic. Happy Friday, Ryan. Happy Friday. The Broncos usually dominate headlines, I think, in Denver sports. But (laughs) uh, the Nuggets have gotten a lot of attention this year with their winning ways. How did they get to this point? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was talking to a friend about this recently, and I was talking about how the Nuggets remind me of a line from a Wilco song. Okay. It's called War on War, and it goes, you have to learn how to die if you want to be alive. And that kind of, for me, summarizes the last, where the Nuggets were about five or six years ago. They were a dead flatlining. They really were. They were going through a lot of changes. They just uh, fired their head coach, George Carl. Their GM left for another team. And over the next three or four years, they were just a really bad basketball team and attendance was pitiful. Uh, so things weren't very, looking up very well, but they brought in a guy named Tim Connolly, who uh, in 2013 became the president of basketball team operations. And he said, look, we're not going to be able to bring in superstar big name players to Denver uh, right now. So we need to build from the ground up. And it's kind of like, you know, Phoenix rising from the ashes sort of mm. thing. So they started to rebuild through the draft and they brought in all these young players And now in 2019, we're seeing that pay off. Uh, That rebuilding process has uh, culminated in a second place uh, standing in the Western Conference right now. Uh, And they're one of the most exciting teams in the NBA. And the energy around Denver, 
Ryan, three years ago, the Nuggets were in dead last place in the NBA in attendance. Oh. This year, the Nuggets have a chance to break their all-time home attendance record. It's remarkable how quickly they've turned things around. And so folks are sharing in this enthusiasm. You said that the, the Nuggets could not go and attract superstars. Do they just not have bags of money? What's the reason? It's a couple of reasons. One was, I kind of touched on it, you know, when you're a bad team. (laughs) You know, you're not going to attract a lot of talent to come here. And the other thing, frankly, is kind of the flyover factor that the Rocky Rocky Mountain region has always dealt with in every sport. You know, if it's such a superstar driven league with uh, endorsements and media markets, well, where are you going to go? You're going to go to the East Coast or L.A. Okay. One of the players responsible for the team's recent success is a Serbian center named Nikola Jokic. He's the Nuggets' first all-star player since 2010. Help us understand what he contributes a lot he is huge he's the best nuggets player who's been around in a long time it's funny though when you look at the guy he doesn't look like a superstar nba player you know he doesn't exactly look like swan lake when he's playing basketball (laughs) it looks more like a a plodding mule going down the court he's just this self-deprecating goofy guy i mean his nickname's the joker right But don't let any of that fool you. He is a tremendously talented guy. And it's not hyperbole to say that he has a chance of being a Hall of Fame basketball player. Let me throw a stat at you. I'm not going to bore people with a bunch of inside basketball statistics. But uh, a triple-double for those who don't follow the game religiously is when a player scores double digits in a few different categories, be it uh, points, rebounds, or assists. Triple uh, Jokic has more triple-doubles in his career yeah. than a guy named Michael Jordan. Oh, wow. And Jokic is only 24 years old, and he's only going to get better, but they need him down the stretch. Okay, before we go, the regular basketball season ends in April. Right now, the Nuggets are a playoff team. What could get in their way, though? Well, injuries really hurt them in the first half of the season, but uh, they navigated through that. At one point, they were playing without three-fifths, sometimes four-fifths of their starting rotation. My goodness. But they're finally starting to get healthy, Ryan, at the right time. Um, Another thing that could get in their way is, well, they've just never been in this position before. This is a really young team. Uh, The last two years, they, uh, uh, they competed for a playoff spot. But they missed the playoffs by one game in the last two seasons. So it's just been this gut-wrenching experience for fans. Uh, And a tough schedule. The Western Conference is brutal. The majority of Denver's games are against teams with winning records. The good thing for the Nuggets is that the Nuggets have a really good record against teams with winning records. So the one thing they have going for them, though is a home court advantage with a fan base that is really energized. I'm telling you, as you know, Ryan, I'm a Colorado native, and I see more Nuggets jerseys, more Nuggets hats, you know, bumper stickers than I've seen in years. So if this depends on the Nuggets' nerves, they'll have the crowds certainly cheering them on. Thanks, Vic, for being with us. Right on. CPR's Vic Vela on a bright season for the Denver Nuggets. Okay, it's considered one of the most important and endangered structures in the Southwest, an old barn near Pueblo made of stone. It's all that's left of the Goodnight Cattle Company there. Who might you ask was Goodnight? Okay, do you recognize this? It's the theme to Lonesome Dove, the TV miniseries. Of course, there was a book, too. 
Both were based on Old West cattleman Charles Goodnight and Oliver Loving. Well, this important vestige, this barn near Pueblo, is going to get a million-dollar makeover. Laurel Campbell leads the organization preserving it. Hi, Laurel. Hi there, Ryan. And let's get some background and this connection to Lonesome Dove. In the 1860s, Goodnight and Loving blazed a trail to drive cattle from Texas to Colorado. I guess, first off, what was that trail like? It was actually, they left Fort Belknap, Texas and went in a backwards J down and up to try to um, stay away from the Comanches. And so they ended up having to cross a 90-mile arid desert called the, um, uh, well, it's the the Staked Plains, uh, Llano Estanada, sorry. And it was um, uh, a tough thing, and they chose Longhorns for that reason because they could go without water and eat just about anything. Okay, and so they had lots of dangers uh, to circumnavigate, Mm -hmm. and they needed hardy cattle to do so. Uh, What was their reason for wanting to bring cattle to Colorado? Well, they had heard that, you know, there was uh, uh, beef needed at at Fort Sumner because there were uh, a couple of Indian reservations there, and that meat was uh, needed up at the mining camps outside of Denver. People needed to eat. Yeah. Why did Goodnight build this barn near Pueblo? Okay, let me read you something really quickly. Because okay. It, it comes from the J.F.S. Haley book, uh, Goodnight, uh, Plainsman and Cowman. Traveling along the route, Goodnight noticed the area around Pueblo, how close it was to the Arkansas River, the premier grazing lands, and the many acres of open range. Goodnight's practiced eye saw the lay of the land at once, for here the forces that wore down the Rockies to level the plains had designed a perfect range in the form of a triangle, and therefore he decided to make his cattle ranch there. He had a good eye for Mm -hmm. the kind of landscape that cattle would enjoy and thrive in, and that's where he decided to build this barn. What did it look like when Charles Goodnight built it? Uh, The barn itself or the area? Well, Um, the barn. Well, the barn is, if you came down to see it today, you'd see exactly what it looked like back then, minus the buildings around it and the rock corral. Um, It's about 35 by 70 feet. It's big. uh, And the only reason it's still standing is rock. Uh, The the rock is getting worn away by, it's sandstone, so it's water and wind. So that's do, why. Do you think he built it by hand? Did he have workers to do this? He had his cowboys. I mean, it's okay. amazing that they actually were able to put together this architectural feature. What do you feel when you're inside this barn? I feel a real closeness to Charlie. Ha <laughs> to Charlie. I've been doing this for six years, and I feel like he knows what I'm doing, and he's quite happy about it. What was like life like on the ranch once he settled there? Do you have some sense? Well, he settled there in 1868 and was there for eight years. Um, he brought his wife Molly out there, and she, they never had children, so she the ranch, the ranch hands were her, her boys. Uh, they had cattle out there. There was a, a railroad spur that came out in 72, and he was able to ship cattle at that point. Um, it was a beautiful area, and he would have stayed but in in 1873, they had the the crash, and he lost most everything. Mm. Had he been a very wealthy man yes. prior to that? Yes. And he had, like, two years' education. It's amazing how much he could do. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about the history of the Goodnight Barn near Pueblo. It is uh, an incredibly historic and threatened barn, but there's about a million-dollar campaign to give it a facelift and... 
to make sure that it uh, lives as many years as it has already into the future. Uh, I understand uh, also that Goodnight had a hand in the invention of the chuck wagon. Is this can this be verified? Yes, he. Uh, I actually have uh, gotten information in the last month or two that his mother designed it, and I believe that. <laughs> and uh, describe that a chuck wagon. It's it's actually a chuck box that sits at the back of a wagon. Yeah, and she designed it, and he made it, and they made it out of. Sturdy wood and iron wheels so that it would take the roughness of the prairie. And the idea was to have a kitchen for to feed all of his ranch, his drovers. Uh, so just briefly, what kind of shape is the barn in now? And how much work will it take to get it up to snuff? Well, the reason why the, the, the uh, price tag is so high is because um, it... The rock is on the western side is going to have to be taken down one at a time, numbered and put back up, because it's like le- taken out of the walls. Yes, yeah, it's that leaning. sounds painstaking. Well, and and really, it's on the national register, so we have to make sure that the people that get the bid know what they're doing, because they have to bring it back to what it was in 1870. Do you think that uh, a lot of people, even in Pueblo? don't know of this barn's existence and its connection to Lonesome Dove and this history? You know, the funny thing about it is, I've said this for years, when I started this six years ago, eight out of ten people in Pueblo did not know that who that barn belonged to in the history. Even now, in your own backyard. Yeah, and now it's eight out of ten no, because we do a presentation, we take it to schools and organizations, and uh, and that has really been our our plus, is getting the education out there. All right. Thanks so much for being with us. You bet. That's Laurel Campbell. She co-chairs the Goodnight Barn Historic Preservation Committee in Pueblo. I've just tweeted a picture of the place if you'd like to see it uh, at CPR Warner or at Colorado Matters. Finally today, the music scene in Fort Collins is blossoming. One reason is the Music District. It's a hub for musicians to hone their craft with workshops and studio space. They can also learn the business of music. Since opening in 2016, the Music District has hosted dozens of national touring artists through its residency program. And the next artist in residence there in Fort Collins has just been announced. Quinn DeVoe is a soul singer from Oakland, California. He has performed with Cool and the Gang, Aaron Neville, Taj Mahal. While he's in Fort Collins, DeVoe and his band plan to play all around town, offer private lessons at the Music District. This is a taste of their sound. You've been gone, don't know where I smell trouble in the air The grin upon your face, you're faking Glitter gone, I can tell I ain't lately feeling well And I can't ever seem to shake it I got my fan on The reason why 
is the track coming up with one by Quinn DeVoe. The Oakland soul singer will be artist in residence at Fort Collins Music District March 4th through the 10th. That's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. Thanks for spending time with us. Our executive producer is Carl Bielek, and our audio engineers are Michael Hughes, Matt Hurz, and Shane Rumsey. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News. I know where you've been